This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, March 17th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. A white supremacist kills 50 in a terror attack at two mosques in New Zealand. Does President Trump see white nationalism as a rising threat around the world? I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. And the president issues his first veto after being rebuked by 12 Republican senators on a bill that would reject his declaration of a national emergency at the border. We'll talk with acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and hear from Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine about why he thinks the administration is withholding crucial information from Congress before a vote to override that veto. And as more candidates jump into the race, all eyes are on one who just might have dropped a hint last night. I have the most progressive record of anybody running for the United anybody who would run. We'll have analysis on all the news, plus former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, and a special look at Capitol Hill's unusual spring interns with CBS News special correspondent James Brown. That's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Happy St. Patrick's Day. We begin with acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, and happy St. Patrick's Day to you. And to you, Ms. Brennan. So. I want to get right to it uh, in the wake of this horrific terror attack in New Zealand. Um, you know, there's a lot of parsing of the president's own language in referring to what happened here. Broadly speaking, the a number of attacks uh, and support for white supremacy is up, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And even a Trump-appointed uh, attorney in the state of Virginia, Thomas Cullen, was recently uh, quoted as saying, white supremacy and far-right extremism are among the greatest domestic security threats facing the United States. Has the president been briefed on this? Um, I, I don't know who that gentleman is. Certainly the president's briefed on all of... You know of, who the Southern Poverty Law Center is? I do, I do. Uh, the president's absolutely briefed on all of the threats, both domestic and international. Uh, but I want to push back against this idea that every time something bad happens everywhere around the world, folks who don't like Donald Trump seem to blame it on Donald Trump. I'm hoping I'm we can get... I'm not blaming it on the president. I, I was say, asking about say, his characterization. I didn't say you. I'm saying that that's clearly what some folks want to, want to do. I've heard other members of, of, of the Democrat Party trying to do it, folks at the Southern Poverty Law Center here trying to do it. This is a tragic thing that happened in They're just in saying New the Zealand number of white nationalist groups has surged by 50%. Since Trump has become office, right? Well, in the past year. There you go. So, so but it, here's but, the point. Why so can't you we, disagree that it's a rising threat? I, I, I disagree that there's a causal link between Donald Trump being president and something like this happening in New Zealand. But that's not the argument or, or, or the suggestion there okay, though, by the judge or by that statistic. Is the president aware that this is a rising threat? Uh, again, a rising threat. I think the president, you saw, you saw him ask the other day, does he think it's a rising threat? And he says, no, I think there's uh, information that would back that up. The, the issue is, how do you stop these crazy people? Whether or not there's one of them or four of them doesn't make a difference if they're willing to go on live TV and stream the murder of people. So I think that's where the time is better spent. Instead of worrying about, well, who's to, who's to blame? How do we stop from doing this? Donald Trump is no more to blame for what happened in New Zealand than, than Mark Zuckerberg is because he invented Facebook. There are some terrible people in the world. We need to work with our partners, of which New Zealand is one of them, to try and figure a way to find them, expose them, and bring them to justice. Well, President Trump, and certainly during the campaign, talked quite a lot about the need to be specific, to name a threat in order to counter it. So why minimize it? Why not directly address 
white supremacy and specifically Islamophobia. Yeah, I, I get a lot of because questions about... Because world leaders did and the president didn't. I get a lot of questions from people saying, well, you need to tell the president to do X. You need to tell the president to go and give a, an Oval Office address on this or on that. That's not how the system works. The president communicates in his way. Different presidents have communicated in their way. I don't think anybody can, cl- can claim that Donald Trump hasn't done exactly what we would want him to do in this circumstance. We've immediately reached out to our allies. We've expressed the, 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 the absolute disgust at, at the tragedy. Tragic, uh, at the tragic events. We're doing what presidents are supposed to do. That doesn't mean that it's going to make everybody happy because mm-hmm. of the hyperpartisan times we live in. But again, I, I really, it's, it frustrates me just as a citizen that everything, something, every time something goes wrong around the world now, not just in our country, somehow the president of the United States must be responsible. And that's just, that's absurd. And it doesn't help contribute to the dialogue that's necessary to fix these problems. Point taken, but the the president of the United States carries a megaphone louder than anyone Mm -hmm. in the world, and arguably this president likes to use his. So because you're frustrated, why not remove any shadow of a doubt? I mean, during the campaign, as you know, as a candidate, the president called for a ban on all Muslims entering the United States. He said Islam hates us. This kind of language in the past leads to these questions of why isn't the president now directly using that megaphone to condemn it? Well, then t- take, the, take, take, take the words and put them in one category and take the actions and put them in another. Something the president doesn't get hardly any credit for or any attention to is the work he's done in defense of religious minorities all around the world up to and including uh, Muslims in the Middle East. Um, some of the religious minorities that are the worst oppressed in the Middle East are some of the ones that this administration has been doing, going to great lengths to protect. So I hear what folks say, say oh, Donald Trump said this during the campaign. Look at what we've done while we've been here. And I don't think anybody could say that, that the president is anti-Muslim. Well, the president's tweeting now about a TV host who was suspended for anti-Muslim rhetoric. So it, it's, I think, a fair question to ask you about this. But I want to move on to uh, one of the fights that is going on in Congress and questions from a number of senators about exactly what programs are going to lose funding sure. in order to put together funding for the border wall. When will the White House give this detailed list, specifically on military projects, to Congress. Uh, it could be a while, and here's why. Here's, here's what's happening, is that we've already told Congress this, which is that none of the programs um, that were scheduled to be started or what we call obligated in 2019, so between now and the end of September, will be impacted at all. The service chiefs have told Congress they have that list, but the White House is not no, handing that list over. No, no, that, that's absolutely... I know of no list, and if anybody should know, it would be me. There's no list of projects that are absolutely going to not be funded so that the wall can be. What it is is a list of programs that fit the criteria that I've just laid out for you, which is that they are meant to be funded beyond the end of this fiscal year. Why is that important? Because if, we, if it's going to be a project that would have been funded, say, in 2021... Okay. It gives us another couple of years to what we call backfill. Congress will pass another appropriation this year, next year, so that n- ultimately none of the programs will be impacted. Senator Tim Kaine, who sits on Armed Services, is going to be on the show later in the program. Mm-hmm. But when we spoke with him, he specifically said that he thinks the White House is withholding these details uh, until after this upcoming vote on the veto override occurs. In other words, yeah, you're the- trying to keep Republicans on board. And if you fully inform them about what you're going to do to their district, then you might lose their vote. I- I'll watch the show. In fact, if I can catch Tim in the green room, I'll ask him what the basis is for that. Does he just think it because he wants it to be true? Or someone told him there's actually a list? Because, again, I'm chief of staff. I'm also still uh, technically uh, over at the Office of Management Budget. And you still don't know what's getting cut. I know of no list. And you don't know what's getting cut. That's correct. I know of the universe of things that might be delayed or reduced or cut in a very extreme circumstance that could be funded, that used to fund the wall. Uh, but of a list of a decision that's already been made saying this money is going to be mm-hmm. cut and spent over there, that's not been made yet. So remove any doubt. You say no matter what these details are, you still have the votes to override oh, yeah. this, to Absolutely. block any kind of override. Yes, no, we fully expect the veto override to fail in the House. All right. Thank you. Vic Mulvaney. Thanks, Margaret. For joining us. Just to clarify, uh, that host is Fox News's Janine Pirro. The network has condemned her commentary and her broadcast did not air last night. We spoke yesterday with Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. He had just returned from a visit to the Venezuelan border and spoke to us from Bogota, Colombia. We asked Senator Kaine about President Trump saying that he did not think white nationalism was a rising threat around the world. Uh, Margaret, it it is on the rise, and the president should call it out, but sadly, he's not doing that. We saw in the aftermath of the horrible attack in Charlottesville that he tried to say 
that the white supremacists, neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates there were just, you know, good people. Um, but when you see church shootings in Charleston, a synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, you see this hate-filled manifesto uh, of the shooter in New Zealand who is murdering Muslims, we have to confront the fact that there, there is a rise in white supremacy, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim uh, attitudes. The president uses language often that's very similar to the language used by these bigots and racists. And if he's not going to call it out, then other leaders have to do more to call it out. And I certainly will. Well, the president did say it was a horrible thing that happened, but he said that the white nationalism issue is just a small group of people that have very, very serious problems. What do you attribute the rise to? Well, they to? have problems, but I think the president is using language that emboldens them. He's not creating them. They're out there. But, you know, at the same time as he was tweeting out yesterday his support for the family members in New Zealand, and that was appropriate, um, he was vetoing the Senate's uh, rejection of his emergency declaration from Thursday, and he used the word invaders to characterize people coming to the nation's southern borders, which was exactly the same phrase that the shooter in New Zealand used to characterize the Muslims that he was attacking. That kind of language from the person who probably has the loudest microphone on the planet Earth is hurtful and dangerous, and it tends to incite violence. I want to ask you about uh, an exchange you had this week that seemed quite tense. You were very clearly frustrated with the acting secretary of defense, uh, Shanahan, uh, because you were asking why a list of military projects had not been provided to Congress that would be directly uh, impacted by funding cuts due to reallocation for the president's border wall. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. I represent Virginia. I have a child in the military. So I sent a letter on February 15th the Secretary of Defense and said, if you're going to ransack the Pentagon's budget, tell me what projects you're going to cut or delay or eliminate. They wouldn't provide an answer. At the hearing on Thursday, we're, we're now going to vote that day on whether we support or reject the emergency declaration. And they still hadn't answered our question, what projects are at stake? At the hearing, he said, oh, I'll send you the list later this afternoon. And you're right, I kind of blew up at him. You're going to give us the list after we vote? This is highly relevant to the vote about the president's emergency declaration. What projects are you going to ransack out of the Pentagon budget? Is it going to be military housing? Is it going to be uh, trying to make our bases safer from terrorism with construction projects? Is it going to be rebuilding Tyndall Air Force Base that got blitzed in the hurricanes? last fall, and they said they would give us the list after. But, Margaret, to add insult to injury, they had to walk that back. They don't even want to give us the list now at all because we're going to have to have an override vote. I don't think the White House wants us to see the list before the override vote. Why do you think the White House is withholding this information you say is so relevant because of an upcoming I think vote? There's one You're reason. connecting. You think they're trying to influence the outcome of it? Absolutely. This is not the Secretary of Defense, in my view. This is the White House wanting to hold the list back because they worry that if senators and House members saw the potential projects that were going to be ransacked to pay for the president's wall, they would lose votes. And I think they're going to try to hide the list until that veto override vote occurs in the House and then in the Senate. You are, of course, in Colombia, nearby uh, what is a country that is really... Uh crippled in many ways economically right now, Venezuela. There are about three million refugees who have fled. The energy and uh, oil industry is collapsing, as is the economy there. What is it that you were going to the border to see? What did you learn? Well, Margaret, I wanted to see a couple of things. One, to support the Colombian government because their effort to provide assistance to these millions of Venezuelanos has been really momentous. But secondly, learn what more the United States can do. We have worked together actually in an accord between the administration and Congress to provide significant amounts of humanitarian aid, to, um, to work together, to pull together a coalition of nations. Nicolas Maduro still is in charge of that country, whether we like it or not. And these sanctions have not seemingly changed his calculus. Uh, the visas, the diplomatic isolation, what is this actually accomplishing at this point? Well, it, um, it's giving hope to Venezuelans that there, there may finally be some change. The question isn't whether Maduro likes it or not. The question is what do the Venezuelan people want?
and the National Assembly has determined that the election of President Maduro was illegitimate, there needs to be a new government. So what more can we do? More humanitarian aid, more work together to pull more nations into our coalition. The sanctions are important. They're having an effect. Um, Sanctions are economic, but there are also visa restrictions on Maduro and his cronies as they try to travel abroad. Um, We need to give hope to the Venezuelan people that we stand with them and support them. It's a massive humanitarian crisis driven by one person, Nicolas Maduro, and the Venezuelan people are speaking out and they want something better. Has the Trump administration, whose policy you seem to support right now, have they underestimated how strong he is? I don't know that they've underestimated it. Look, this is This is not easy. It's a difficult situation. And I do generally support what the Trump administration has done, with one exception. I think loose talk about U.S. military action is a big mistake. One, because that's not for the president, it's for Congress. But second, the right strategy here, there's only one person using the military against Venezuelans, and it's Maduro. Senator Kane, thank you for joining us. Safe travels. Thank you, Margaret. Absolutely. We'll be back in one minute with a lot more Face the Nation. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. Legacybox.com slash save. We're back now with former federal prosecutor Preet Bharara. He was, of course, fired by President Trump after he refused to resign as U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And he has a new book out, Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law. Preet, good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Um, I read the book. I want to get to some of the news of the week, but first ask you actually how you ended this book, because I think it resonates this week in the wake of the terror attack in New Zealand. You recount a story uh, and a case of of a hate crime against someone who wanted to go out and kill Arabs after 9-11 and ended up killing uh, some or, and then injuring uh, some South Asian individuals instead. Is this just a continuation of Islamophobia, of white nationalism? Is there something here, or is, as the president says, it's, it's not really a broader issue at all? Yeah, well, thanks for asking about the end of the book. Uh, I, I think a lot of the world is mourning the loss of innocent lives, uh, up to 50 now in New Zealand. And, you know, from my old vantage point as a law enforcement officer, the chief law enforcement officer federally in Manhattan, Uh, Law enforcement has certain tools, right? You can do surveillance. um, You can infiltrate organizations that propound hate and try to engage in terrorist acts. You can also hold people accountable after the fact. But one of the points I make in the book, Doing Justice, over and over again, is laws are not enough. Mm -hmm. Law can do some things, but at the end of the day, if you want to quell people's hatred, you want to make people get along better, you want to have harmony, you have to have good people who are willing to, to step up to the plate and do, among other things, call out bad things when they happen. And in the case that I was referring to that you mentioned in the, in the end part of the book, it was a Bangladeshi uh, immigrant after 9-11 who was shot in the face by someone, uh, Mark Anthony Stroman, who decided that he wanted to take revenge on behalf of, I guess, his race for people who had perpetrated the acts of 9-11, obviously going and randomly shooting people uh, where they worked. And Race Bullion was not killed and decided in a way that I think is extraordinary to forgive the person who tried to kill him and tried to get him off death row and, and spare him the death penalty. He wasn't ultimately successful. But to my mind, it's, a, it's an inspiring story of how some people go beyond what the law even requires, beyond what the law allows to try to have forgiveness and, and harmony go forward in the world. And I think we need a little bit more of that, and a little bit less of the nasty rhetoric and a little bit less of uh, you know, people like the president uh, not stepping up to the plate and calling out bad things when they're happening. An important note there uh, in this week, but I want to turn to some of the other news that we've seen on uh, the political and legal front. Um, 
you know, we saw on Friday the special counsel again ask for the fifth time a delay in the sentencing of Rick Gates, who was a, a Trump campaign deputy, because it was said he's cooperating. How should people understand this? <laughs> what does this mean? Well, not just cooperating, but cooperating in, in quote unquote, several investigations. And so, you know, I'm an outsider now and I don't still run the Southern District of New York and I'm not aware of what's going on with various investigations that sometimes, you know, intersect with the special counsel's investigation. But I think people should view with some skepticism uh, the notion that gets breathlessly reported every week that the Mueller investigation is coming to an end. It may be because Andrew Weissman, who's one of the top deputies, in fact, the top deputy with Robert Mueller, announced that he was stepping down, which indicates maybe it's wrapping up. But then, as you point out, you have this letter about Rick Gates, who's cooperating in multiple investigations, and they delay the sentencing, which seems to indicate that he's substantially cooperating and engaging in some success for the prosecuting team. So you might expect other indictments, other work going forward. So it doesn't seem to me, based on that, although I don't know, Mm -hmm. that the work of the special counsel is ending anytime soon. Unless it's the case, the one caveat I have is, unless it's the case that the cases on which Rick Gates is cooperating are being parceled out, parceled out to other U.S. attorneys' office, uh, offices like the Southern District of New York or D.C. or somewhere else, so that the special counsel team can step back and have its work be done. Steve Bannon and a few other individuals uh, have said that actually the biggest risk to the president is not from the special counsel, but actually the Southern District of New York, which you know well. Do you agree with that? Well, I don't know if I would frame it that way. It's a sort of polemical way to frame it. But yeah, in the sense that the SDNY, which I led for seven and a half years, doesn't have the circumscription on its ambit in the same way the special counsel does. The special counsel was appointed, you know, under a particular regulation and was supposed to look at only things relating to interference in the election and potentially collusion, quote unquote, collusion with uh, with Russians in connection with the with the with the election and anything arising from it. And one of those things that arose from it was obstruction. The Southern District of New York uh, has a lot of people in it whose mission is only to find crime, uh, be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt if it's in the interest of justice to do it. And they're very aggressive and they're very fearless and they're very independent. They don't care about politics. When I was there, we prosecuted Democrats and Republicans and it didn't matter who they were you know, affiliated with. Yep. And, and so one of, the, one of the things I try to say in the book is to explain the philosophy and the culture of the men and women of the Southern District of New York. And, uh, of course, state and federal charges and how a president's pardon could affect them are, are different, too. Um, I want to ask you as well about Paul Manafort. He was sentenced in D.C. this week. Uh, the sentence was added to. Before that in Virginia, what some would characterize as light sentence. Do you think justice is done? It's hard to say. You know, punishment is a very difficult thing to calibrate. Um, you know, whether a few months more, a few months less yeah. is in the interest of justice is hard to measure like, like mathematics. Um, I agree with the people who said that the first sentence of Paul Manafort of 47 months was a bit low, given the guidelines and given the nature and seriousness of the crime and how long it went on. I think that overall the addition of three and a half years from Judge Amy Berman Jackson makes it overall a seven and a half year sentence, which is closer to right. I still think it's overall low, but it's hard to determine. Preet Bharara, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Margaret. The book is uh, Doing Justice. We'll be back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. There are two more candidates in the presidential race, but it's one who is not in the race, at least yet, who raised eyebrows when he accidentally made a slip in a speech last night. Our Ed O'Keefe reports. The man many Democrats are waiting for sure sounded like a presidential candidate Saturday night. I'm the most progressive record of anybody running for the United anybody who would run. Former Vice President Joe Biden is expected to make it official next month. That's why I'm running for president, and it's why I'm asking you for your support. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand today became the 14th Democrat to officially launch a presidential bid, even though she's been basically campaigning for the job 
for eight weeks. Gillibrand plans to formally kick off her campaign next Sunday outside Trump Tower in New York. Other candidates traveled to early primary states this weekend hoping to build support. We have common pain all over this country, but we've lost our sense of common purpose. And Beto O'Rourke wrapped up a three-day tour of Iowa that launched his campaign. This is my first time to ever visit Iowa. O'Rourke narrowly lost a U.S. Senate bid in Texas last year, and presidential buzz has been building ever since. His rollout was treated like a major media event. He told Vanity Fair magazine for a cover story, I'm just born to be in it. And he sat for his first in-depth interview as a candidate with CBS This Morning co-host Gail King. Do you consider yourself more moderate or more progressive? Yeah, you know, if, if I think about a term like progressive, I want to make sure that everybody has a chance, um, that our democracy fully reflects the genius of this country, that we make the investments in one another, and that's universal guaranteed high-quality health care. It's a living wage for everyone who works. It's supporting those who are looking for jobs. So if, if that's progressive, I'm a progressive. You're a progressive? Yes. All right. <laughs> All right. So I don't even need to go into moderate then. Meanwhile, former Florida governor and 2016 candidate Jeb Bush said this weekend that Republicans ought to be given a choice, suggesting someone needs to launch a primary challenge to President Trump. He named Maryland Governor Larry Hogan as a possible option. Hogan told, told us a few weeks ago he isn't ruling it out. Margaret? Ed, we'll be back in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Face the Nation. Joining us for some more 2020 analysis are Jamal Simmons, Democratic strategist and host on Hill TV, Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report, and of course, our own Ed O'Keefe. Ed, you just laid out the crowded field. I was speaking to a Democratic strategist this week, or fundraiser, I should say, who said this is like waiting for Godot. When we're waiting for Biden? When we're waiting for Biden. And still not sure. Godot never shows up. Is Biden going to show up? (laughs) I mean, if you believe the verbal slip-up last night at the Dover Downs, yes, uh, he certainly made it seem like he is. Uh, You know, I asked him earlier this week when he was at this firefighters union event here in D.C. along a rope line, what's the holdup? He says there's no holdup. He just looks at history, which suggests that... People have waited a little longer than this current crop that got in, you know, at the stroke of midnight, essentially, uh, as the year began, and and thinks that he has some time to, to, you know, to spend because he's got the name, clearly has some money ready and and ready to come, uh, has locked up some staff. Uh, We don't know to what extent the size of his operation will be, but... uh, all signs still point to early April, sometime before tax day, April 15th. You know, Ed mentions history, and with the vice president, it's... it's uh, history is actually a pretty tough marker for him. What do you mean? Um, Democrats, you know, he is very popular. People all over the country are hungering for him to get into the race. But Democrats have never elected a sitting or former vice president uh, to the White House before. Uh, Democrats also, uh, if, you look at, if you go back and look at some of the 538 polling... The person who was ahead in the national polls at this period, a year out from Election Day, did not ultimately win the White House. And there's only three times that person won the nomination. It was Walter Mondale in 1984, Al Gore in 2000, and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Hillary is a tough marker. So the vice president really has to, I think, um, take on the fact that that he's going up against these trends. And that means he has to do things differently. He needs a more diverse staff than he has had in the past. He's got to be willing to talk about progressive issues in a way that's more compelling than he has in the past. And I hope that's what they're planning. Amy, do we need new blood as a 
former President Obama suggested? I mean, he, he's not necessarily going to. He's not the newest Biden. person in the in the mix for his years there on the Senate side. It's really interesting watching Democrats grappling with their choices this time. They have all kinds of opportunities here, generationally, on race and uh, and um, on gender seems, and on gender. And it seems that the issue really comes down to this. How safe of a choice do Democrats want to make? And by safe, we have to we all are going to determine that the Democrats are going to determine that, too, in di- very different ways. And um, the safe being really who's the one who we know can beat Donald Trump. That's the that's the question a lot of Democrats are asking themselves. What does that mean? And versus the who's the most disruptive in mm-hmm. this field? Um, waiting for Godot is a good um, description. I also think primaries are a lot like trying to figure out who you're going to marry. <laughs> and um, do you go with the person who really races your heart or do you go with the person you want to bring home to your parents, right? And Democrats... And you it, don't it, think the recently, two things can be the same thing? Sometimes, <laughs> like, sometimes they can be both. I think Barack okay. Obama was both. Mm-hmm. I think in 2004, remember, there's that infamous bumper sticker that said, dated Dean, married Kerry, right? <laughs> it was a lot out? of fun. And, and that's what the, and if you're a Democrat, a lot of Democrats will say, exactly, when we made the safe choice, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, we lost. We got to go with somebody who's going to be engaging in a very different way. The other, just one more quick thing about engaging and broadening, going away from safe, it's also about broadening the electoral map outside of the presidential race, which is the Senate. There are a bunch of Democrats I talk to who say, we can win the White House, but if we don't win the Senate, and then guess what? Not a lot of this is going to matter. we got to go into places like Texas, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia. Those are the races that are going to determine control of the Senate. Arizona. It was such a rollout for Beto O'Rourke. Right. I mean, people are acting like he is anointed. Is this going to backfire on him? Well, and I think to the the charge that the media may have overdone it, we have to remember something. I made this point repeatedly in our reporting this past week. You talk to every other campaign that's involved in this right now, the one name that kept coming up in private conversations mm-hmm. was always him. Is he going to do it? Do you think he can raise $80 million again? So this was them essentially goading us into saying, you know, they're, they're scared of him, very scared of him. And this coffee shop countertop campaign that he launched this week by jumping up on countertops repeatedly, uh, was it you that said, I hope you brought the window? Yeah, you need some, you need some, <laughs> well, you know, it, it seems to have gone well for him. And, and he started very strategically in, in southeastern Iowa, a part of the state where Democrats used to dominate and have struggled in mm-hmm. recent years. And repeatedly people said to me, you know, they don't usually come to this part of the state till later in the primary. So we give him a lot of credit for doing it. And uh, we'll see. Amy, there's been some attention to uh, perhaps a double standard here that Beto delayed making an announcement. He had this sort of soul-searching played out in the press that uh, a female candidate of the five or so we have so far would have been punished for looking indecisive. I'm Do sure you there's still, there is still going, and there will always be a double standard. When we look at whether their candidates of color or women are going to be judged different standards than white men. At the same time, I do think every one of these candidates gets their little boomlet, gets their time to make their case. And this is why the debates are going to be so important, because all this is right now is sort of fluff. Mm -hmm. When they're all on the stage together, making the case that they have the best opportunity, I'm the best person here, to go up against Donald Trump, that's when voters really get to see what they're made of. You know, he's a little bit... I I, I would argue that Beto uh, O'Rourke is the best natural candidate out running natural. for this area, for this era, right? He understands social media. He's, he's willing to engage in that sphere in a way that Donald Trump has engaged in, and nobody else really kind of can do that. What we don't know is, can he do all the other things that have to be done in a campaign? Can he build out an organization? Can he raise the money? Can he withstand all the hits that are going to come his way? Those are really big things. But, you know, this week there was a, um, a kind of an, a, a little bit of an upset. A lot of women I talked to were really upset about the way he talked about his wife and raising their kids. That came up a lot. So I took it on myself to start calling around to some of the people and friends and family. Because um, he said his wife mainly raises the children. That's right. So I started calling women who don't live in Washington, who don't live in California, and asking them, Michigan, Georgia, Texas, Ohio, asking them what they thought. And the, what, the most interesting response was a 70-year-old woman relative in Detroit who said to me, oh, yeah, I saw that. I really like that. 
<laughs> um, so I think she sometimes thought she was giving. He, he, she thought he was giving his wife. Credit. She thought he was giving his wife okay. credit. So I think um, I think sometimes the, that things sound differently to people who live in different places, and we just have to we have to wait and see how this right. all sussed out. Which is why the process sometimes. is so important. You haven't heard Democrats yet. It's going to happen. Say this process is too unwieldy. We're going to damage the ultimate nominee by having all of these debates and this you know lasting far too long. Right now, I think it is the only way to determine which one of these candidates meets all of those different criteria that Jamal pointed out of who's going to be able to raise the money, look like they can stand up to the president, be able to be inspiring, also have a pathway to the White House that looks to voters Mm -hmm. like a realistic path to the White House. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there with the three of you, but more to come when we come back from this break with some analysis of the week that was. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the sleep number store. Because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a sleep number bed. Sleep number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We turn now to our panel for some analysis on the other big news of the week. Jamal Simmons and Amy Walter are joined by Ramesh Panuru, who is a senior editor at National Review and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And Mark Landler covers the White House and foreign policy for The New York Times. Good to have you join us. Uh, Ramesh, let me ask you, you know, Amy brought up in the last segment this point about uh, it not just being about the 2020 presidential race. It's also about some of these congressional seats, Um, senators. Some of them we saw with this vote on uh, the rebuke to the president, the accusation that maybe they were a little worried about their seats in 2020, and that may have swayed some Republicans to stick with the president instead of rebuking him. How big of a concern and a factor was that? Well, I think it's very striking that of the 12 Republican senators who did not vote with the president, who voted to disapprove his declaration of a national emergency, um, only one of them is running in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a risk on both sides, right? There's the general election risk because the emergency is unpopular and the wall is unpopular. But among Republicans, it's, these things are very popular. And obviously, I think a lot of Republicans showed that they were more concerned about winning their primaries mm-hmm. than they were about the general election. Who do you have in mind? Is, is it Tom Tillis of North Carolina who took a lot of heat for that 11th hour switch of his vote? Tom Tillis in North Carolina, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Joni Ernst in Iowa, all of them voted with the president and not with, you know, the, 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 the 12 Republicans like Mitt Romney and, and Pat Toomey, Mike Lee and others who had these constitutional concerns about what the president's doing. Mark, uh, Mick Mulvaney was on this program and said that he, he thinks the White House, you know, has nothing to worry about with this attempt to override the veto. But how was this received inside the White House? It was the president's first time to use the pen in this way. And it was also the first time the president was rebuffed this way by Republicans. Ramesh points out that several of them didn't go the whole way. But the fact of the matter is, after two years in which the Republicans have been just an absolute uh, reliable sort of uh, bastion for the president in Congress, um, I thought this was still symbolically important. And I'm sure that President Trump's argument is, well, I didn't pitch as hard as I could have. If I'd really asked for the votes, I would have gotten them. But nevertheless, they must be looking at this and thinking, do we have Mitch McConnell as reliably as we thought we did? And facing the prospect of more unpopular, potentially policy decisions and debates down the road, is this the first in what will be a more independent uh, Republican uh, majority? 
majority in the Senate, a majority that's going to make decisions not just blindly following the White House and President Trump. Some might say that's wishful thinking. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. And, and, and I stipulate that we haven't seen it and we've had the same sort of discussion many, many times in the past. Well, this will be the moment that they show their independence and they continue not to do that. Um, having said that, you know, this was a somewhat different set of circumstances. It didn't play out quite as well as I think the White House hoped it would. And so that's got to be at least somewhat concerning for them. Do you think this resonates with people at home or is it lost on them? I do think it, it, it doesn't really resonate unless the president wants it to resonate, in which case what he does very well is turns it back against Congress. I think he loves the idea that, look, I told you people in Washington didn't understand us and our vision for how we keep America safe. They're they're trapped in their old ways of thinking, I'm here to break us out of this. And so it actually works for him, even when it's members of his own party. I think this is very beneficial to him. And um, I I do agree that with the question of whether this signals more dissension or whether it's just this was a really easy vote the veto, they're never going to have to vote on this again. They're not going to have, it's going to die in the mm-hmm. House, most likely. They won't have to vote on this again. And then it's in the courts, where ultimately means that none of the discussion that we're having right now may ever have to turn into reality. Ramesh, one of the few areas where we did see some some public criticism of the president from Republicans was on the foreign policy front. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, going into 2020, I guess there are some questions about well, what does the president say he delivered on when it comes to North Korea? What does he say he delivered on when the promise to pull all troops out of Afghanistan? And we have some upcoming decisions on both of those things. Uh, how much of a political lens should we be putting on them? I tend to think that those sorts of foreign policy decisions are not all that politically significant in a presidential election unless something has gone very, very wrong. <laughs> and in that case, people start holding politicians accountable and asking why things that they themselves as voters weren't paying attention to weren't done. So I I think the stakes politically are low, even if the stakes for our long-term national security are kind of high. Right now, I think the president can say that to his core voters, look, I have been trying to pull out of uh, our commitments overseas, or at least downsize them in an intelligent way. And I think that that is going to be accepted as, as fine. I don't think that there are a ton of Republican voters who are saying to themselves, you know, um, we need to be more involved in Syria. We need to be more involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I think that he's going to be fine on this front. Uh, Mark, we had the president go to the Pentagon on Friday for a classified briefing. Do we know what threats he was actually getting briefed on? Uh, well, we don't precisely know what threats he was getting briefed on. The assumption is clear. He was probably being briefed on North Korea. He was probably being briefed on Syria, where, after all, he made this decision to leave some American troops behind after saying he was going to withdraw them, and probably also on Afghanistan. We are in the midst of this peace uh, reconciliation process with the Taliban, and part of that process is setting a definite timeline for withdrawing the remaining troops there. So I'm, I'm sure some combination of those issues, plus Iran, were probably all on the table at that point. And there are about 12,000 troops still in Afghanistan. That's right. And that com- that conversation has become very complicated in the last couple of weeks because the Afghan government feels that we, the United States, has cut them out of the process. We're dealing directly with the Taliban. The Afghans are, don't have a seat at the table. And that's become very contentious just in the, in the last week in Washington with a couple visiting Afghan officials uh, raising some very serious criticisms of the administration. Do you hear anything from this week with what's being described as sort of a blow symbolically to the president or the frustrations in trying to deliver on some of these foreign policy promises? Is there any rich territory for Democrats to message and mine? I mean, think of the Democratic political establishment or the Democratic left, the voters. People are thinking more about Russia and Russian influence than they are about some of the more fine points of foreign policy. They generally get the president is not really doing very well. And the candidates don't seem, the Democratic candidates, don't seem to be that, that far apart on this. I think what people on the, on the Democratic side are trying to do is alter an, al- offer an alternate vision about what's important. So the reason the president and immigration focus is important is for, for his base 
is because it says to particularly white, disaffected voters, I'm the guy who's standing up against the brown people coming into the United States and trying to preserve the country for you. I think what the Democrats are trying to say is there's actually a bigger problem that happens. And so if you look at what happened with the cheating scandal with the schools, like there's this sort of mob of people who are at the top. They've got all the goodies. So this goodies mob, and I'm not talking about CeeLo, but there's like a goodies mob out there, right, <laughs> that is dividing up all the opportunity among each other. And those are the people that we all have to be worried about. How do we tilt the scales back in favor of working people? And somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who talked about this idea of breaking up big tech companies, is somebody who's driving this agenda on the left that says, maybe we've got to change the rules about how we deal with our economy. And that's an alternate vision that I think Democrats are trying to establish. And, might and yet that's also going back to the who, who's the safe choice. And for Democrats trying to balance these two uh, very important segments of their electorate, the the ones who do see that the system is rigged, they're attracted to the Bernie Sanders message, also who's going to turn out that Obama coalition that Hillary mm-hmm. did not, younger voters, voters of color. But the newest coalition are those white suburban voters who came out, and guess who they voted for? They voted for Beto. That's how Beto came so close in Texas. It wasn't the rise of younger or Latino voters. It was white suburban voters who all who came out and voted for Democrats in the House and for Beto. How do you keep those voters from either staying home or defecting back to to Donald Trump? If you put a candidate, it goes the the theory, someone like Elizabeth Warren, someone like Bernie Sanders, that's going to turn off those voters who who were willing to vote for us, say Democrats in 2018. But Jamal, Bernie Sanders is trying to woo black voters right now in South Carolina. He's trying to make up a difference, I guess. He's trying. Well, you know, there's learn. a funny picture that was going around the Internet yesterday of him at an African-American church in South Carolina, but everybody in the room was white, right? Mm-hmm. So he, so what happened was they, they built a crowd, but it wasn't actually the crowd of the membership of that particular um, church. So he's got, a, he's got a little bit of a tougher road. I think of the two of them, Elizabeth Warren probably is the, more, uh, is the one people may buy into a little bit more. But here's my real guess, is that somebody, whoever the Democrat nominee is, will end up adopting a lot of the policy choices that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren put forward, because that seems to be where the passion of the left is. We will see. Thanks to all of you. Um, We will be back in a moment with a look at a unique new class of congressional interns. Politics and football meet head-on this spring with an unusual class of interns on Capitol Hill. CBS News special correspondent James Brown reports. Michael Thomas, Austin Carr, and Ryan Hunter are used to running, blocking, or catching for a living. But for the last couple of weeks, they have been running around the halls of Congress tackling the big issues facing the country. I've been fortunate to sit in on meetings with foreign policy administrators from the Middle East, whether it be constituents from the state of Missouri and the city of Kansas City, St. Louis. Ryan Hunter is an offensive lineman for the Kansas City Chiefs. He's interning for freshman senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. This is fun because we're both new together. So Ryan's new, I'm new, we're kind of learning the ropes together. I think it's phenomenal that NFL players like Ryan, who are very busy guys and have a career that they're pursuing, want to be involved in their communities, want to be involved in service. Michael Thomas plays safety for the New York Giants. This is his second time working for Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who represents his district in Houston, Texas. What a better place to be, not necessarily only in my office, but in many offices where they can be change agents and translate that leadership on the field into making a difference. After interning last year, I was like, I got to come back because I saw firsthand what she's doing and how much she's really on the ground, you know, like putting in the work. A lot of things that we were fighting for for criminal justice reform, bail reform, education, uh, 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 you know, reentry with juvenile detentions and stuff like that. She's already had bills written. You know, they're on the floor. She's proposing these things. So I'm like, okay, this is how we can take that next step. And you are firmly convinced that Capitol Hill, this arena, this venue, if you will, can affect the kind of meaningful changes that you and others who have the same feeling Absolutely. can bring about. Absolutely. I mean... It's going to take, you know, it's going to take time. You can't, nothing happens overnight. I can see how other people can say, man, like, that's slow. We need, we need something now. We need to do something now. And I get that passion. I feel it. Austin Carr is a wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints. He is pro-life 
and interested in some libertarian ideas, which is why he is interning for Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. I'm seeing how hard they work, in particular Senator Rand Paul, how often he's running to and fro to different meetings, different committees, meeting with constituents. What have you seen in this young man, Senator? We're we're glad to have him here, and uh, I think it's good to see another side of our athletes. According to the NFLPA, the average NFL career lasts just under four years. In 2014, the union started an externship program to prepare players for life after the NFL. Since then, 183 players have had on-the-job training in a variety of fields. Michael Thomas is a member of the union's executive board, and he sees this as an opportunity to speak for his community. Thomas was one of the players who protested police brutality by kneeling during the national anthem. Me being here, being an inside interning, I see the steps that needs to be ta- that need to be taken. I'm willing to put in the work. I'm willing to advocate for it. I'm willing to help out Congresswoman Jackson Lee any way I can, using my voice and my platform, same way I did it on the football field and taking a knee. Austin Carr met with the Attorney General of Louisiana to talk about the opioid crisis. Nationwide, the U.S. consumes 80% of opioids in the world, right? Ryan Hunter learned more about brain injuries after meeting with the Society for Neuroscience. I'd rather be here than be in the Bahamas because I'm learning so much for the future that this, this experience in its own beats, you know, having an umbrella drink on the beach. These pro athletes came to Washington to learn from political leaders, but their mentors seem to learn from them as well. Uh, no, I'm glad to see that Austin, uh, you know, believes uh, strongly in his faith and uh, that it sounds like he wants to be part of trying to make things better in the country, but also be an example uh, for, you know, kids out there that look up to our, our stars. Having players say, I want to be involved, I want to serve, uh, I want to see it from the inside, I want to do something about that, that's awesome, we need more of that, and I think Ryan's a great example. I hope he will be able to be here when we are seeing these bills pass out of the House and the Senate where we have changed the criminal justice system. Wouldn't that be great? That's my heart and passion, and I hope he will be part of it. Absolutely. (laughs) That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, and former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow the show and CBS News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.